HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring the culinary wonders of urban New Jersey with a tour through Newark. We speak to Frank Mentesana at Phillips Academy Public Charter School. This idea of family style and made-from-scratch lunches continues to be a bit of an anomaly in the city. We also hear from Gil Speyer from All Points West Distillery. Newark used to have an incredibly rich beverage alcohol history. And we'll tour Aero Farms, the world's largest indoor vertical farm. We're growing using 390 times more productivity than field farming and 95% less water. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network to be amazed at the wonders of Newark. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Joining me today is Andrew Tam. His research on Singapore Hawker Centers reworks what food reveals about multiculturalism, our, f- our favorite A-word, authenticity, and socioeconomic distinction. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Oh, thanks for having me. So, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I think it's, it's great to, to have an opportunity here. I'm not sure if you know, but Singapore is actually currently putting on a bid to UNESCO to include um, hawker culture into its list of um, intangible cultural heritage. Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, so, yeah. So uh, let's do a bit of background. Where are you calling us from and how did you transition from um, studying the history of food to working in the civil service? Oh, yeah. Um, so I was in the U.S. for a year. I was doing my undergraduate um, I was doing my postgraduate there um, in history of science and medicine. And when I was at Yale, I did a, a class in the history of food. And um, it was a miserable winter and I was just missing home food. Um, so I decided to torture myself a little more, um, <laughs> study a bit about um, the food back home and kind of apply some of the cultural lenses and historiography to it. Um, just to take different um, approaches to it, um, just look at it in different ways. Yeah, so um, that was essentially how I got into this. Now I'm back in the civil service, and actually I'm in the midst of writing a piece. Um, I'm at the Urban Redevelopment Authority in Singapore, and um, one of the things that I'm looking at is actually looking at from a city planning angle. Yeah, so there's like so many different ways to look at it, and the Singapore is a very small country now. We're obsessed with food. Um, given the UNESCO bid, it has come to the forefront of the national conversation again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, it was it this homesickness that initially sparked your interest in Singaporean culinary history? Um, yeah. Um, so Singapore um, has always been obsessed with food. Um, if you look at, if you read Singapore history and you read um, even Singapore's fashioning of the self, um, food features very much. Um, and even as a Singaporean when I was living overseas, um, the thing that I miss most about the country was its food. Um, it was something that was impossible to replicate when you were overseas. Mm-hmm. 
And so a word that gets thrown around a lot, um, whether on the show or in food studies, is the word foodways. And so how would you define it in the context of your research for Singaporean foodways? Yeah, foodways, I guess, it, um, to me, it's, it's just the whole practice of consumption of food, but it's the way that's socially situated. Um, and it's the way food is prepared, the way food is consumed. And what that tells us specifically in my research, what it tells us about you um, and what that tells us about the nation, um, the way food is represented and the way food is talked about. I think that's a integral part of food waste as well. I think reveals both the anxieties um, as well as um, the culture of a place. Mm-hmm. And so were you able to better understand Singaporean foodways by being absent from it, by being in America? Yeah, I, I think uh, it's interesting with going to America um, and, and going to Britain as well, where I studied for my undergraduate, and looking at even um, Singapore food or what they claim to be Singapore food, um, ordering it and being very disappointed mm-hmm. or looking at a menu and looking and ordering a, a plate of Singapore noodles and thinking, I've never had this in my life. Um, it, it makes you miss it slightly more, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of the near misses that make us um, more acutely aware, I guess, of this idea of authenticity, where something claims to be, um, and but it's quite not quite there. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that that makes you really think about what it means to be authentic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's that, that tension between what, um, for example, these Singaporean noodles, what other people have perceived to be a Singaporean and what you perceive to be a Singaporean, and how has that influenced your understanding of yourself and maybe your understanding of how, how others perceive you? Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, like few people argue with me because I'm Singaporean, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, that, I mean, that, so that, I guess speaks to um, the, the source of authority, that um, one of the sources of authority is that you were there, um, you come from a place, you situate yourself as part of the history. Um, so very few people are going to argue um, with, with a Chinese person whether something is Chinese food mm-hmm. or um, Singaporean, whether there's such a thing as Singapore noodles. Um, but that I think there are many other aspects to authenticity which, upon thinking about it and researching it, um, actually when I came back to Singapore and looking at some of these so-called quote-unquote authentic foods, um, really made me think twice. In yeah. what ways? Um, so one of the things which I was um, actually really interested in is, is I, I guess, um, a very pertinent topic on, on your show is, is what is authenticity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what makes something authentic? What delineates um, between a food that is worthy or real? Um, and, and increasingly realizing that these perceptions, um, the criteria in which we delineate, worthy food, unworthy food, uh, counterfeit food is, is very much a social construct. Mm-hmm. So one of the interesting things is that, um, so I, I love Japanese food. Um, and a, a, a big part of Japanese food, I, I think similar to, to many other cultures, is the visual spectacle of it. Mm-hmm. The way that it's artfully placed, there's a symmetry to it, the color of it. Um, it's a very important part of it. And if you don't display it in a certain way, it detracts from its authenticity. Singapore local food, um, which I which I, I refer to uh, hawker food as, as local Singapore food, has visual quality very low on it on the importance. If if you order what is what we call authentic noodles, um, what we call char kway tiao, um, it's it's just flat noodles and it's fried and pork lard, um, and it's and it's black and it's it doesn't look that great um, to someone who's never tried it before. Mm-hmm. It it just looks like a mash. It looks like a mash on the plate. Sometimes a bit of it's coming off the side of the plate, and it's almost like plated very hurriedly. Um, these these things um, actually contribute to what we deem as authentic. So you could go to a hotel today and order the same dish. I mean, it's very artfully plated. Um, you have the sprig of spring onion there. Um, it's on a really nice porcelain plate. And you pay like 
five times the price for it. Um, but most locals wouldn't consider that as authentic. Mm. Um, so that, that, that's one of the aspects and it's actually a bit ironic to say that actually it needs to look not that nice um, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of aesthetic mm-hmm. I would say um, that, that makes it authentic um, a second one would be tradition um, a tradition in, in the sense that um, there's a real um, sense that it's a trade it's a particular recipe from the past that has stood the test of time and remained somewhat constant across decades. And a particular person has refined his skill over time such that this dish, which well, well, hawkers in Singapore specialize in one or two dishes usually, and he's been cooking this dish for 30 years. And part of the authenticity is a consistency that this guy has churned out something on a plate that tastes exactly the same for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, which is actually very different from a lot of, I mean, if you look at um, uh, fine dining today, a lot of the emphasis is about pushing the boundaries. Mm-hmm. It's about constantly evolving. It's about, you know, that you never get to eat the same thing again. Um, because the chef is always sourcing for the latest and freshest produce and he's pushing the boundaries and reinterpreting, um, you know, culinary styles. But it's a very different aesthetic here. It's like, I want to eat the same thing. I'm here to relive the nostalgia of the taste of 30 years ago and I know that I'm part of this tradition where I'm eating the same thing that my grandparents ate. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes it authentic. Yeah, I think uh, I want to get back to what you're talking about, the visual element being rather low on the priority list. Um, I think that Uh is pretty common across many Asian cuisines. And I think this gets explained um, in America with Dave Chang's Ugly Delicious. Have you heard of the show or kind of his idea of that? No, but 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 do tell me more. Okay, about yeah, sure. It. So it, it's um, kind of a big Netflix docu series on which um, Dave Chang cooks the food or shares a lot of quote unquote low foods that are ugly but delicious, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like oh. America's realization that food can be ugly but also <laughs> taste really good too. And I think that mm-hmm. while it celebrates some really you know underappreciated foods, I think it's still confines or limits these Asian foods within the Western narrative in, in that it has to be has to look the Western way to be considered delicious. And so how would you I feel like there's no way to kind of quote unquote elevate, like you said, the Singaporean food to put on a porcelain plate and still have it be true to its intention. Yeah, so I, I mean I I appreciate the, um, the thought, uh, but I, I'm somewhat cautious to kind of fetishize, you know, mm-hmm. a certain aesthetic and say, oh, you know, Asian food all looks terrible, but yeah, exactly. it's actually really delicious. Yeah. Uh, because um, if you look at um, many other cuisines uh, within those whole, this whole diversity, which you call Asian food, there are some um, where the aesthetic is, is astounding. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, extremely beautiful if you look at some Cantonese presentations Japanese presentations um, even you look at you know um, those kind of Hello Kitty bento boxes <laughs> <laughs> that's nowhere near ugly in fact it's nothing it's, it's amazing um, where where the visual aspect is so important um, but uh, in, in Singapore I think it has to do with its origin which, which brings us back to this idea of authenticity, which is what makes it authentic. Um, if you trace back the origin of a lot of these um, dishes, they came from the context of an immigrant society um, where they were serving these um, meals on, and they were itinerant, it was on push carts, people were eating them on makeshift wooden stools and, and tables. So there was not much time for, for fancy presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was kind of a um, necessity back then, but the authenticity is a not and a throwback to those origins. So while today, um, if you look at um, some cafes and some restaurants, which um, they actually do put in quite a lot of effort to present it in a way that is um, ex- 
acceptable even to the Western eye, um, actually, in in the in the eyes of the local, it might actually detract from its authenticity. Um, because uh, the, the the common question is, like, oh, if um, if they've had to you know um, put in so much effort um, to to arrange the, the cucumber slices and all, uh, it can't be that great <laughs> because the guy who has been cooking it for thirty years since the days of the pushcart has been doing it the same and you can't rival his skill hmm. even the wok that he has been using he has been using it for decades and it has, it is, it has been absorbing the flavour mm-hmm. so you can't recreate that um, and, and this guy can't be bothered for that mm. yeah so let's provide um, some of this historical context before we get into um, the details you write that um much of your writing is building upon the works of Terulovich and Deruz and Ku. So can you talk a bit about um, eating her curries in Quay and eating together and what influence they had on your work and how you want to build on top of that? Yeah, so I, I guess um, I, I published uh, an article in Gastronomica and, and this is, I guess, the context to which I was referring to some of the existing um, historiography that has already been um, on on Singapore hawker foods. So I, I guess my starting point was that it's actually really ironic that food occupying such a central position in the history and the heritage of Singapore, um, but there's correspondingly has been a lack of historical inquiry in of food ways in Singapore. It was only until about 2007 where... Um, Professor Lily Kong produced an illustrated history of hawker centers. But uh, that, that was slightly more um, from the story of migration and cultural diversity. And it was only actually um, recently where um, Nicole wrote on eating her curries and kueh. That was actually the first book-length history of Singapore food told through a cultural lens. Um, so she goes through the story um, of Singapore since the colonial times um, and kind of interrogates um, food as a metaphor for multiculturalism. And if you do just like some quick reading on Singapore food, you immediately see um, this link between local food and multiculturalism and specifically how that was an important building block in what the Singapore society is. So uh, I guess for a bit of context, Singapore is a multicultural, a very intentionally multicultural society where we recognize Chinese, Indian, Malay, uh, Eurasians as um, part of this cultural mix that we have. Um, and that's part of Singapore identity. So it's not defined by a particular race. Um, and the, the brand of multiculturalism um, is one in which each race maintains its distinctive identities, heritage, culture, rather than like a mixing amalgamation uh, model. Um, yeah, so anyway, that's the context. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, she, she is actually the first who, who wrote a book like history through a cultural lens. Um, there's um, Jean Duruts and um, uh, Ku Kai Cheng who wrote Eating Together. I think it was published in 2014. Um, and they wrote about food, space and identity in Malay, Malaysia and Singapore with a chapter in Hawker Centres. Um, so there's actually not that much written on the specific space of hawker centers and that's actually one of my interests which is there's there's a particular space there's a um so you, you have hawker food um which is a, a particular genre of food but it's not always served in the same space um previously uh, when all the immigrants came in it was usually in food trucks and push carts and itinerant hawkers but in about the 19, late 1960s, the government came in and built um, hawker centers and relocated all of these people who were in push carts into stalls and regulated them, imposed certain kind of requirements of hygiene. Um, and, and that really was the birth of the site which 
this generation of Singaporeans associates hawker food. If you want to eat hawker food, you go to a hawker center. But that wasn't always the case. And then this site um, of a hawker center um, has evolved as to what it means. Um, so I, I kind of make the argument that um, if you look at the 1970s, um, the hawker center was actually um, a means of imposing order, a means of regulating, a means of taking these people off the streets where they were clogging up the streets and then, you know, um, they were causing disamenities and there were hygiene concerns. And this space was a means of regulating them. And that kind of uh, the instinct from the government came all the way from the colonial administration when the British were, were in charge of Singapore. But today, this space, the Hawker Centre, has now been repackaged. And it's repackaged in a way that um, has become a natural, uh, a national icon. Um, so an example of this is um, the, the first, the first wet market. Um, it was called Teluk Aya Market. It was built, uh, I think, in the 1800s. Um, it was Singapore's first wet market. There's where fish and fishmongers and butchers were. It has undergone so many transformations in terms of what it sells, where it is, how it looks like, that one would actually say that, hey, this thing which now is set on a different plot of land, which looks somewhat different, sells a different thing from the original thing, um, but is traced back to it, um, is a different entity altogether. But it has been repackaged, and this is now um, a national monument. Hmm. Um, and when you visit it, um, people will say, oh, this, is, this was the original market, the first wet market that was built in Singapore. But it was converted from a wet market to a hawker centre. It was shifted inside. It was demolished and was rebuilt. I mean, today it's, it's, it's a tourist attraction. It's a national icon. I mean, it's where people who visit come to, to, to taste Singapore and to see Singapore. But it's, it's historic. It's, it's ancestry. It's, it's haphazard. It, it, you don't trace it back nicely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so as the offerings have changed throughout time how also has its audience changed sorry as the what changed so as the foods offered like you said it used to be a wet market and now it's more um, Mm -hmm. a place to sample dishes how has then the Mm. desired target audience changed as well yeah so I think for the Singaporean I I mean the two groups of people there's there's the internal audience the Singaporean and then there are the tourists uh, the people who come to to taste um, what is what is the nation. Um, these people have changed. Um, in the past, when you look at hawker food, um, well, I I never believed that food is is just a necessity. Food is food is a necessity, but cuisine is always a choice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so usually, the kinds of food that you eat um, is born out of necessity. Um, it has a correlation to what is available, but cuisine is absolutely contingent and it's a choice. Um, but I would, I would make the argument that in the past, um, it was about subsistence. It was about getting the most calories um, for the cheapest. And so if you look at a lot of the the traditional dishes, they're very carbohydrate-rich. They're very fat-rich. They're quite oily. There are very little vegetables. Um, There's hardly any meat or fish. It's mostly just to flavor it. Um, And that's because you are trying to fuel a primarily um, immigrant society which is working on manual labor. Mm -hmm. So it's about feeding them. Today is very different. If you go to a hawker center, um, if you look at my generation, a majority of us are, work in the office. <laughs> so the problem is that we hardly move. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, so the, the, the requirement that we have is different. But we want to taste of this because we've grown up eating this. Um, it's, it's a lot cheaper um, than, than most of the other options. But we want to taste this because this is um, 
what it means to be Singaporean. Mm. You, you participate in the history. But so you start to see um, uh, Singapore is, is, a, is an intriguing place. Um, there's, there's, this, there's this whole conversation about trying to, to make us all healthier. So in Singapore, um, the government has been trying to nudge its citizens to eat healthier, um, try to consume less oil, try to swap out your white rice for brown rice, um, eat less sugar, etc., etc. You say uh, it's better for you in the long run as well. So, um, and the public response has been quite good. So that has placed a different demand on um, the hawker food. Hmm. So one of the one of the things that I was thinking about is actually that. Is this a threat to hawker foods? Because with all these changing in appetites for on, in, on the parts of the people, you start to see a much more health-conscious generation whose requirements are not calories. Um, in fact, it's I want to, you know, you see, you start to see um, a lot of uh, people in my generation hit the gym and then I, I want to get lean protein, you know. <laughs> I don't want to eat any oil. Um, and then they're queuing up for, you know, these salad bowls. Um, and uh, the hawker food just doesn't cut it. And you've got to start to observe that, that the hawkers have actually tried to adapt to it. Hmm. Um, but they're, they're navigating this quite uncomfortable space because... Um, so one of our, our our most beloved dishes is this thing called chicken rice. Um, if you can imagine, um, chicken rice um, is basically like poached chicken. Um, and the rice is flavored with chicken. Um, you use the chicken fat and the chicken stock with um, butter and pandan. And, and you cook the rice. And so the rice is fragrant. You can't swap that rice out with brown rice. <laughs> um, it's just not the same. It, it's a travesty. Um, so it it doesn't it doesn't. So I mean, the, the whole government is trying to tell you not to eat white rice, and here you have this chicken rice, which is probably has double the fat and calories as normal white rice, mm-hmm. and people wanting brown rice. And so hawkers are in this uncomfortable space where they are trying to navigate this. How do I change and cater to some of these tastes, but retain what is authentic. Um, part of the experience of eating chicken rice is eating the chicken skin and the chicken fat, which which becomes gelatin when you cool it after it cooks. <laughs> that's, that's not lean. Uh, that's, not, yeah, that's not lean meat at all. Mm-hmm. So hawkers are in this space. And, and it has been a difficult one. It has been a difficult one. Yeah. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning Alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk, combined with expertise and affinage, is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Jimmy Carboni, and I'm the host of Beer Sessions Radio here on HRN. My show is an audio ale salon celebrating the world of craft beer, cider, food, and more. Through discussions with industry insiders and knowledgeable beer fans, my friends and I explore every aspect of the brewer's craft, from grains to pint glass and tasting to toasting. You can find Beer Sessions Radio wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back. Um, So we were just talking about how hawkers are having to kind of adapt to growing demands on um, leaner proteins and maybe swapping out for salad bowls. I totally empathize with you. I love the the chicken fat and the cooled gelatinized uh, skin as well. But um, so let's... 
swap to talking about multiculturalism, which you got into a bit before. Um, as hawker food um, grew increasingly accepted and desired by tourists, how is it used as a tool to um, display Singapore's multiculturalism? Hmm. So this is the most common, I would say, the most common interpretation of why the site of Hawker Centre and the food which is sold there is so beloved and so emblematic of what Singapore is. And most people make the argument that um, hawker food is one which transcends the class divide and it transcends all races. And this is something which is actually a very precious commodity in Singapore society. Um, if you observe Singapore society, I think um, we, we as an economy has grown, um, we have progressed, in, uh, and we are we are we are a maturing economy, and we've experienced like quite miraculous, I'd say, economic growth since the 1960s. But what has happened is that it has opened up a class divide. Mm. And I think you're probably familiar with this in America as well, right? So this is widening class divide. Um, the additional layer of um, of complexity is that there's also this idea of multiculturalism, that Singapore is primarily an immigrant society with different races coming in. So you have your indigenous Malay population. Um, and, and about the 1800s, there, there were huge numbers of Chinese immigrants coming in today. Um, and there were also Indian um, immigrants who came in, especially with the, with the British colonial um, administration. So today, what you see, um, and of course, you have um, with, with with Singapore becoming much more cosmopolitan, you have people all over the world coming here today. You have this mixed um, group of people coming all from different cultures and and traditions. So you have these two. You have widening class divides. You have so many different races. And what is the one thing that unites? Um, and for, I mean, America is a couple of hundred years old. Um, if you look at China, they're thousands of years old. They have a common history which unites you. So you can say, oh, you know, across all classes, we, we share a millennial history. And there's a connection. But in Singapore, you struggle to find something like that. It's very difficult to find something where everyone can point to and say, this is an important part of my life. This is an important part of my self-identity. And I can share this with you across class divides. And I can share this with you across different races. And it's, it's a rare commodity. And hawker culture, hawker food is one of these things. And so it's so precious to Singapore society um, that people have kind of raised it up and said, this is, this, is the, this is almost like the savior for national unity. Um, it's, it's where um, the Chinese people would queue up um, to, to eat Malay food and Indian food, and they love it. It's where um, the CEO would have to queue in the same queue as a cleaning staff. Um, and, and this is something which transcends it. Um, but I think there are some cracks um, beneath the surface. You know, I, I speak as, as uh, you know, my individual view, um, but it, it isn't so rosy, actually. Um, so I'm not sure if you're familiar, but um, so, so Bordeaux, right? Pierre Bordeaux, mm -hmm. um, eminent sociologist, he, he articulates this, this idea where every kind of um, concept which includes also simultaneously excludes. Mm -hmm. um, and when you have food and hawker food and you draw a boundary and you say, hey, look, it includes the Chinese, it includes the Indians, it includes the Malays, it includes the Eurasians. By drawing that boundary of inclusion, um, you necessarily demarcate those which are excluded. And today, if I walk around the hawker centers, right, I don't see um, the cultures of many immigrant groups represented there. 
predominantly, if you walk around, you see the groups which are represented are those which are accepted in almost the national constitution as um, part of the multicultural rubric. Namely, Chinese, Malay, Indian, and others. Um, so I walk around and I actually ask myself, "Where's the Filipino food?" Because there's a sizable um, Filipino population in Singapore. Where's the Bangladeshi food? We have men. We have thousands of, um, of of immigrants from Bangladesh who come to Singapore to work, but their food is not represented in the hawker centers. And there's a very practical reason for that um, because unlike in the past, hawkers um, are locals. You, you must have a permit, you know, you apply. Um, but it's, but it's, 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 it's interesting because it's very different where in the past, um, hawking was a low barrier to entry kind of job. You know, all you needed was um, crockery to cook with and you can start a business when back when it wasn't regulated so it's a it's, a, it's quite a natural thing for um, immigrants to turn to especially when you have a community who come and who desire a certain type of food mm-hmm. um, so that, that that makes a lot of sense but today you can't um, and so to me actually um, if I look at the variety of hawker foods um it's a bit saddening that actually there is um, a layer of exclusion as well. Um, and one of the other things, which if you look at it, so, I mean, I mean, people say, oh, yeah, you know, there's no Filipino, there's no Bangladeshi food, um, but there's Western food. Hmm. And my question is, why is there Western food? <laughs> because that's not traditional, mm-hmm. right? Today, um, you walk around the hawker center, you see pasta, you see um, stores which are selling spaghetti bolognese, aglio olio, mm. um, carbonara, like pasta, like spaghetti, linguine. Um, and I'm like, hey, what's that about? Mm-hmm. You know? Is it like um, a Singaporean interpretation of Italian food or even American food? Or is it, um, yeah, wh- what, what introduced oh, yeah, the, the Western... I mean, there, there, there are burgers and fries as well in hawker centers and they're, they're, they're increasingly popular. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole spectrum, I'd say. Like, there are Western foods which are unrecognizable to the Westerner. Mm-hmm. So my wife is British. And when she came to Singapore, I was like, oh, you know what would be funny? I'll bring you to eat Western food in the hawker center. Um... And, you know, she's expecting fish and chips. Um, and here you have um, you have fried rice, a fried egg, and fried fish. Mm. And she was like, wait, this is not, <laughs> this is not a Western food as we know it. Uh, why do you have fried rice? Where are the chips? Where are the mushy peas? Mm. Um, um, so there's this whole spectrum. So that, I would say, is local Western food because it was reinterpreted um, through many years where um, the colonial influence comes and they reinterpret it. And today it's actually like a distinct genre by itself. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned... Um, but, oh no, keep going. Oh, oh, but, but there's also the, the, the other extreme where actually um, I look at some of these um, foods and they are attempts I mean, probably an Italian eating it will say this is not real aglio olio, um, this is not real carbonara, but it's a definite attempt um, to recreate what is an Italian dish as opposed to reinterpreting it and saying this is my take on noodles. Mm. But that is featuring in um, hawker centers today. And so that leads me to, to say that actually are there some kind of biases within us where we think of certain cultures as being more acceptable mm. or being more marketable? And so, ironically, actually, while we, 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 we trumpet a kind of multiculturalism where we, we so-called transcend race, but actually we are rehearsing some of these racial hierarchies 
which Singapore claims to denounce. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned um, two other case studies where culinary identity is kind of at war. Like you mentioned the Laksa Wars and also uh, Kaya Toast. Can you mm. talk about those as well? Yeah, so, well, I, I guess to an American audience, I must explain what in the world is Laksa, right? <laughs> Both of them, um, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, laksa is it's kind of um, probably the most familiar dish would be curry. Um, but it's a lot less thick than curry. There's, there's, there's a coconut milk um, element to it. Um, but it's kind of that spicy, um, savory broth, which looks orange. Uh, and uh, you eat it with noodles and, and cockles. Um, so the laksa was an interesting one, um, where basically there was this whole huge war, well, spat, of um, many stores claiming to be the original store which first founded on the street. This is, there was a particular street in Singapore and it's, it's, it's along um, this road called Katong. And the, the, this street was the, was the home of so-called the original laksa. What original is no one knows because um, it has a it has a definite start date. And if you look at Malaysia, what they would say laksa is very different. If you if you go to Malaysia and order laksa, it's not even spicy; hmm. it's sour. But in Singapore, it's 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 spicy. Um, so there was this whole war on all the stores vying over the claim to this geographical provenance to say, I came from this and I'm the original Katong Laksa. Um, And it was an interesting case study where the authenticity of something was almost tied to where it came from. And you see that playing around in many hawker stores today. So you go to a hawker store and if you look at the name of the place, if if you study the signboard, Many hawker stores would have the original place where it first started. And it's so you can trace back its historical origin and you say, oh, this was the store back there and it relocated here. Hmm. But this is the original one because I recognize it. But the, the, the crazy thing is that if you go around Singapore and, and if you count the number of Katong Laksa stores around Singapore, I don't think the street is long enough to fill <laughs> so many hawker stores. Hmm. Uh, you would have nothing else on that street and, and more. Um, so there's so something fishy going on where so many of these stores are claiming to be the Katong Laksa. Um, so I, I think this is an interesting um, case study where geographical provenance becomes everything. Mm. But the, the contrasting case study is today, um, there's, the, 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 there's a company which manufactures the paste to create laksa. And when I was a student studying overseas, I actually bought this paste. So they, they, they do the, the, the most difficult part, the blending of all the spices. And all you do is really add water and you heat it up. Um, and so, so it's a no-brainer. And then you, cre- you recreate this thing. And how authentic is this? Um, when I tasted it, I'm like, okay, I mean, it's, it's, it's not as good as when you have the original one because the, the, the original one uses fresh um, coconut milk. This is a paste, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the, the authenticity comes from the experience of actually eating it there. Mm-hmm. there there's the element of place. It's where you eat it. It's, it's not the same, right? Um, you need to eat something at a particular place for you to complete the experience. If you decontextualize the taste from where you are eating it, you are missing something in the authenticity. Um, and so I think this is an interesting contrast to say actually some, some scholars make this point that, that Katong Laksa is the taste of the place. And the history and the narratives around that street, you know, some kind of culinary legend has become so intertwined with the dish 
that geography becomes integral to eating of this dish. Um, so you have to almost make that pilgrimage there to that street to eat this dish. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, and you wanted me to talk about um, what was the second one? Was it oh, Yaku? The, the Kaya toast. Yeah. So Kaya Kaya is um is is it's like a jam. It's it's a it's a fragrant egg jam that is flavored with this this leaf called pandan. Um, so it's on toast. So actually, it's very interesting that if if um, a very popular chain in Singapore is, is this brand called Yakun. And Yakun sells um, what I call the triumvirate um, of Singapore breakfast. And it's kaya toast, just just normal toast that everyone's familiar with, with this jam. Runny eggs, which um, many foreigners detest, is, is where the, the egg whites are extremely runny and the egg yolk is also raw. Mm-hmm. Um, and coffee, and so the, the, this is the this is the traditional so-called Singapore breakfast, um, and this is an interesting case study because if when I studied Yakun, the the the, the brand of it, it talks a lot about authenticity, mm-hmm. and it draws on its historical origins um, from this guy, so it's named after the founder Yakun or Akun. Um, and he tells his story about how he came to Singapore, um, how he sacrificed a lot, um, how he spent nights sleeping on the countertop of his store, um, started um, his breakfast service at five in the morning, um, and always served the same quality things for really affordable prices with the same recipe all these years. So I visited I mean, I mean, we visit it all the time, all over Singapore. But if you visit it, you, you see these really interesting um, artworks. And it's like a poster. If you study the poster, um, there's a, they, they have this poster which says, Screw the French press. We've got the sock. And he's talking about the process to make his coffee. Um, so obviously a French press, okay, I, I'm not familiar with the history of the French press, but relatively modern invention, I guess. And and to them, um, an emblem of the, the industrial process, I don't know. Um, but they're, they're saying that, well, you know, all these, a lot of people have moved on and started using all these fancy equipment. We're still using the sock hmm. to drain the coffee beans. Um, and it's kind of saying that we have stuck to the time-tested traditions of how to make good coffee. And that is what makes us authentic. Mm. Um, and the, 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 they have another poster for eggs. And it says, uh, the question is, how would you like your eggs? And there are two options, wet and runny or runny and wet. <laughs> um, the same menu since 1944. Um, <laughs> And this is interesting because you go to other places today. And I mean, one trend in consumerism is customization, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I need to, you know, you go to a cafe and say eggs Benedict and somehow you can choose, you know, many different types of how you cook your egg. But here they don't give you a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think it's a, it's a gesture towards, it's, it's this creating of a, of a sense of authenticity and branding, right? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, Why? Um, and I think part of the implicit argument is that the the longevity of their methods, the traditional methods, speaks to the quality of it. It's kind of like, it's so good, so we haven't had to change it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it has stood the test of time. Um, but if you look at its origins, actually, um, I was talking about the, the three elements, the toast, the eggs, and the coffee. It has its origins in the British breakfast, um, toast, eggs, and coffee, right? Um, but there are many hybrid um, developments. So this, the jam, was actually um, a kind of a reinterpretation of a Portuguese egg jam. Um, and this whole thing um, 
Yeah, I mean, because Singapore is such a such a is a country of fifty odd years history, you just have to go back half a century, and all our so-called origins are all reinterpretations of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I think that when you talk about authenticity and and, and I have to problematize all these things because it's much more complex than a culinary aesthetic or, you know, coming from a particular place or just a single historical origin. Mm-hmm. It's always evolving. It's always in a state of flux. Um, and I don't think it's, it's that useful for us to kid ourselves to say, you know, oh yeah, this is authentic because of this. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing about Yakun is that um, recently when, I, when, when you go there, um, you start to see really, really fancy things because you, um, you would expect that they have the same menu since 1944 and no other thing, right? Um, but today, they're serving stuff like cheesy French toast with kaya, mm. um, ice cream toast, sweet and sour chicken sandwich. You have all of these things which are new and which, to me, no, no one's going to think that that's traditional, that's authentic by any means. These are twists. You know, these are trendy inventions, so to speak. And it's uh, it's interesting. I think maybe it's a new management. I don't know. It's a new. It's a new corporate strategy. But it's also that to me speaks of the instability, um, even for them, of what authenticity is. Hmm. Yeah, that's a perfect way to end our episode. <laughs> Thank you so much, Andrew. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.